Listener Production. So in 2019, I was at a party. It was on election night. We're all sitting around the TV, glued to the coverage. There was a lot of excitement. A lot of people at that party were hoping Scott Morrison was going to get turfed. They weren't big fans. He'd only just taken over from Malcolm Turnbull the year before. It was pretty messy. There was excitement about Bill Shorten. Um, Bob Hawke had just died, bringing up a lot of good Labor memories for people. And the polling had put Labor way ahead. But as the night wore on, we realised pretty quickly that the votes that were coming out of the polling booths were not matching the opinion polls. And the vibe got weird at the party and also on the election coverage on TV. Should anyone trust an opinion poll ever again? After losing more than 50 consecutive opinion polls, and maybe that's the last time we should mention them, the result is so different to the polls. Way outside the margin of error. The polls are not reflected in what we've seen so far. Yeah, Penny Wong sounding pretty depressed there, and that pretty much set the tone for this party I was at. Because as we well know now, um, Scott Morrison won that miracle election. The polling was wrong, like it had been with Brexit and Trump in 2016, both underestimating right-wing support. So this time around, Labor's in front again, 53 to 47 in the latest news poll. But can we trust opinion polling anymore? In this episode's briefing, a detailed look at what the polls are telling us this time around and whether they've fixed the problems from last time so that we can trust them again. That's coming up after today's headlines with Antoinette Latouf. It is Wednesday the 27th of April. There's a new climate change controversy for the Coalition. Several national MPs in Queensland have broken ranks on the net zero commitment with one Queensland candidate saying the target was flexible And Senator Matt Canavan even saying net zero as a global movement is dead. Net zero is kind of dead anyway. As well as that, Matt Canavan also criticised the government's $275 million hydrogen announcements yesterday in Townsville and Gladstone. And that put the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, on the defensive. Our commitment to net zero by 2050 that I made in Glasgow, it is the government's absolute policy. So this comes as Labor's policy takes some heat from one of the country's largest miners, Whitehaven Coal. So their CEO, Paul Flynn, has said Labor's emissions policies could amount to a carbon tax. Yeah, so that put Anthony Albanese on the defensive. He was forced to rule out a carbon tax in an interview with Ray Hadley on Nine Radio yesterday. There will be no carbon tax ever. So just when you thought the climate wars had been neutralised by both major parties committing to net zero by 2050, the small points of difference and the internal ructions in the parties raise their heads again. Six million Aussies will be eligible for a one-off $250 payment today. Treasurer Josh Frydenberg announced the cost of living payment in the federal budget last month and the money will hit bank accounts from today. So the payments are available for welfare recipients, veterans, pensioners and concession card holders and the money comes right in the middle of an election campaign. Yeah, to sweeten the deal. And Tom, the reason the cash boost was actually capped at $250, that's to avoid additional pressure on inflation and to help Aussies pay for things like the rising cost of living and petrol and grocery prices. And look, to be fair, nobody says no to a little cash boost. I know, Mm. you know, at a state level, I've used all of my Dine and Discover vouchers from the New South Wales government. I, you know, liked and happily took the $500 credit for after school care, but they really are just a distraction and a band-aid for more structural issues like the fact that we don't have any real wage growth and the housing affordability crisis. 
Well, it appears that Karen from Kuyong is in big trouble. Uh, Karen Hayes is the boss of Guide Dogs Victoria, or she was. Uh, she's been stood down for taking part in a political advertisement and endorsement for the treasurer Josh Frydenberg in the seat of Kuyong. So the guide dog chief was photographed holding a beautiful guide dog with a statement of why she's supporting Frydenberg, the treasurer, and the Liberal candidate for Kuyong. And she signed the statement as Karen, Chief Executive Officer, Guide Dogs Victoria. It was also used on flyers that were letterbox dropped and on social media. Which included this video. One of the things that we've really valued here at Guide Dogs with our relationship with Josh is that he really listens and connects us with people within government that we need to talk to to make change. So it turns out she did this without the knowledge of the board and they've now stood her down pending an investigation into how this happened and they say they're doing this so that it never happens Again. Yeah, Tom, it seems that Karen is having a Karen moment and I'm usually reluctant to, you know, to trade in stereotypes and many women take issue with what they see as kind of ageist and sexist stereotypes, you know, labelling women Karen. But you're but going for it anyway? Because, only because... She was previously on Sunrise in 2020 when this whole Karen phenomena of, mm. you know, white middle class entitled women was taking off in defence of Karens. My name is Karen, but I'm one of the good Karens. <laughs> and I suspect her colleagues are now questioning that. What, whether she's a good Karen? Yeah, because it seems like the good Karen did a bad thing. Russia is warning of World War III. It is real. You can't underestimate it. NATO, in essence, is engaged in a war with Russia through a proxy and is aiming that proxy. War means war. That's Russia's Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov. He said the risk of World War III is serious and criticised Kiev's approach to peace talks. Meanwhile, the Secretary-General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, met with Russian President Vladimir Putin overnight calling for cooperation on aid and evacuation corridors in the conflict areas. We urgently need humanitarian corridors that are truly safe and effective and that are respected by all to evacuate civilians and deliver much-needed assistance. Germany has also stepped up its commitment to help Ukraine, as well as sending anti-aircraft tanks to Ukraine. They'll also train Ukrainian soldiers on German soil. And Novak Djokovic has been cleared to defend his Wimbledon title. We're planning to return to a normal championships this year, and so we don't intend to implement any of the COVID-19 measures that we saw last year in any substantial fashion. That's Sally Bolton, All England Club CEO there, announcing COVID-19 vaccination will not be mandatory for players at this year's tournament. So the tournament starts on June 27. Yeah, and it's good that Djokovic will be back. Um, He obviously had a terrible time here in Australia when he was deported after arriving because he was unvaccinated. The other controversy facing the tennis tournaments, Wimbledon in particular, is that they have banned Russian and Belarusian players from playing because of Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. Look, and I take a bit of issue with this because I'm not sure that banning athletes from certain countries because of their government is fair or effective. Like, is Putin going to reconsider bombing Ukraine because of the tennis? Well, what about apartheid in South Africa? There was a massive sporting boycott on South Africa and that was part of the pressure that brought about change. I understand, but then which conflict do we then apply boycotts for, sporting court boycotts? Because I know Palestinian human rights advocates would argue that when, they're, when children there are getting 
killed and there's ongoing persecution, should that mean Israeli athletes get banned? Like, which, like, how do we cherry pick which athletes we, we take issue with and which countries, uh, military, we take issue with? Very complex decisions, Antoinette. Um, we'll talk to you again soon. Katrina Blouse is about to join me as we talk about election polling and whether we can ever trust them again. All right, Katrina Blowers, let's find out whether or not we should be trusting the election polls this time around. We've got a data journalist called Casey Briggs joining us. You might have seen him on ABC News during the pandemic where he rose to fame for the way he used a really impressive data touchscreen to explain what that data was telling us about COVID. Yeah, now he's applying himself to the election and he's had an in-depth look at election polling and how it went wrong last election and whether we can trust it this time around. Casey, thanks so much for joining us. Why was the polling so wrong in 2019? I think there were two problems, Tom. One was that the sort of biases that we saw in the polls, the errors, if you like, were quite a bit bigger than, you know, polling had historically seen in Australia. If you start with the first one, the first problem around the actual error in the polls, you were looking at about a 2.9% error on the final polls that each pollster did just before the election. They're about 2.9 percentage points out, uh, which is significant. It's outside the margin of error for most of the polls because they usually do a larger sample kind of in the final week of the election campaign. There was quite a lot of soul searching after that election uh, result came through and it pretty clearly showed that the polls had a problem. Uh, and one of the lessons that the pollsters learned is it looked like they had some issues with the way they were generating their samples. They kind of were oversampling people that were politically engaged, tended to have higher levels of education, and they were undersampling people with lower levels of education, a little bit less political engagement, but also people of high incomes in those groups. So, you know, put it plainly, they were undersampling tradies and they were oversampling people who, um, you know, had university educations. Okay, so it sort of sounds like they were sampling too many people in the bubble uh, or the Canberra bubble, as Scott Morrison would say, people that really care and engage about politics. And the result was wrong in the same direction of as Brexit and the 2016 presidential election in the US. Was that a coincidence or was this the common problem in all three of those polling errors? Yeah, not a coincidence. This is, is a really similar problem that Brexit had that um, we saw in 2016 in the US presidential polls. And, you know, there are some that argue that Australia's pollsters should have seen this coming because of that. There were some headwinds in the industry around the issues that were being seen overseas and perhaps they should have taken preemptive action in Australia. And I think polling is really hard and generating a sort of truly random sample in Australia is a very hard thing to do and a very expensive thing to do as well. And you're never going to get a perfectly random sample. But if you know where your sample is deficient, you can then correct for that later on and you can, you know, reweight your sample to ensure that you've, you know, resolved as much of that as possible. One of the problems here was they didn't realise that their sample was deficient. But, yeah, you're right, it's the same sort of issue. You know, people who want to take part in a poll, people who get the invitation to take part in a poll, they're much more likely to say yes if they're politically engaged, they have an interest in politics. Uh, They tend to be more likely to say yes if, you know, they have higher levels of education. The kind of hit rate, the golden era of polling was when you would send pollsters around to people's houses and ask them questions about who they thought they might vote for. 
getting a really accurate poll is really expensive. And that's one of the other things we need to remember is that the polls we see in the media are not those really high quality, really expensive polls typically. Wow, this is so interesting. And, mm. and I, I've got to say, I've never been polled, so I didn't know about the nitty gritty of this stuff. So typically, how big are these samples and what's the incentive for anyone to actually do it? I, I imagine it would take time and for anyone who doesn't want to be publicly polled, what's in it for them? Many of the pollsters do have some level of incentive uh, for taking part in their polling panels. You might be kind of going in the drawer for gift cards or things like that if you're on their panel and participate in their poll. So that's one way they get people to take part. The other thing we should say is in terms of incentivising and how they find people, the big national pollsters that you see in the media, like YouGov, who run News Poll, like Essential, like Ipsos, like all of those ones, the sort of national opinion polling they're doing is really only a tiny amount of their business. They're market research companies. They're doing a lot of polling, opinion research, focus groups for corporations looking to market their products or wanting to find out how to, you know, what advertising messages are going to work on people, all those sorts of questions. That's the majority of their business. This kind of national opinion polling that you see in the newspapers is a very small part of what they do. And they use the same sort of panel as the basis for that, but they're generating their panel for that purpose. This is, in many cases, it's a loss leader for them. They're not charging newspapers the full cost of running the poll or perhaps they're even giving it to the newspapers for free so that they can get their name out there in the in the media. It's almost a bit of a kind of marketing ploy by pollsters themselves. The media industry doesn't have the money to pay for a really, really, really high quality poll with a very big sample. You know, the pollster's getting something out of it as well. Well, it's pretty crap marketing if your poll's wrong, though. So maybe they should put a bit more money into it if it is a marketing statement for these polling organisations. I would also add, though, if, if one gets it right this time and all the others are wrong, that's a very good marketing statement. So we'll see how that goes. I guess it leads to the obvious question, what have they done to fix these sampling problems and, and can we trust them this time around? All of the pollsters uh, kind of have kept some of their methods um, behind closed doors. They don't want to reveal everything they do. But we know most of the pollsters now are waiting on an education burial. It's kind of to resolve the issue we just talked about, to make sure they're getting enough um, tradies in their final sample and not seeing too many university-educated Labor voters. So that's one thing they're doing. The other good thing we've seen is the formation of a body that's giving us quite a bit more transparency on some of the polls. It's called the Australian Polling Council. And basically the pollsters have got together to come up with a set of standards for their industry. And that includes some disclosure standards that tell us a bit more about you know, how they've generated their panel, how many people were involved, what's the margin of error and what variables have they weighted their sample on. And that gives us quite a bit more information about how exactly these polls are working. Now, mm. some of the polls are part of that, not all of them. Should we trust polls, I think was your second question. Mm. Look, I think the polls we've got are still the best way we've got of measuring kind of truly and scientifically how people are feeling about not just who they're thinking about voting for, but how they feel on various issues that come up in parliament and in politics across the course of, you know, the year. But we always need to remember that polls are not predictive. Polls are not looking forward. They give you a snapshot and by definition, they're looking at the very least what were people thinking last week. They also always have error in them. And what we hope is that that margin of error is relatively small. But in most of the national polls, because the samples we're looking at are usually between about one and 2,000 people, that margin of error can be up to about three percentage points, which means if you're looking at a 
a poll that says, you know, it's a 50-50 race, well, you're really looking at a poll that's saying it's between 47 and 53. And that's a pretty wide margin. That's a wider margin than really, you know, the vast majority of election results in recent history in Australia. My advice to people is always to say, don't just look at any one poll as a sort of really good indication. Polls have variability. Polls should bounce around. If they're statistically rigorous, you should see them bounce around from time to time. But if you combine them all together, you can get a trend line out of that that might give you a better, clearer idea of what all the polls are saying. Okay. So, Casey, looking at the lay of the land with what all the polls are saying right now, what can we glean Mm. from them about the upcoming federal election? What we've got from all of the polls we're seeing at the moment is that Labor is, according to the polls, in a position where they would form a majority government. There's a few caveats that I would put on that one. Like we've just been discussing, this is based on some assumptions that, number one, the polls are unbiased when you combine them all together. There'll always be a little bit of an error at the end of the day. Scientific sampling is always going to have a little bit of error. It was never going to get it perfect, but we want it to be a lot less than 2.9 percentage points. So that's the one caveat. But based on that caveat, um, what we're doing is calculating a polling average every day and putting all of the data as it comes in. And at the moment, it's saying that Labor on a two-party preferred terms has about 54% support. That compares to the coalition's 46% support. So that is a significant lead that Labor has in the polls. If that kind of result were replicated on May 21, you would expect Labor would form a majority government. And that's despite the fact that the the primary vote for all parties is actually quite low. There's quite a lot of votes sitting with, you know, the Greens and with um, One Nation and, and the United Australia Party and independents all over the place. Despite that, you would still expect on 54% that the Labor Party would form majority. But the other thing we've seen is a little bit of tightening already since the campaign's mm. begun. It's come from about 54.7 to about 54 And we probably would expect to see a little bit more tightening. We kind of normally see tightening in the polls. It's kind of been the pattern for the last five or six elections that Labor comes in at the beginning of the campaign with a higher percentage in the polls than it ends up with five or six weeks later. And that narrowing can be a couple of percentage points. So I'm sort of expecting we'll see a little bit more uh, narrowing, even if nothing else kind of changed in the campaign. The question will be, you know, does the campaign itself affect anything? Does it knock another percentage point off Labor's support if if Anthony Albanese were to have a bad couple of weeks coming forward? Uh, And that's what we don't know. And that's why we say the polls just aren't predictive because there's a lot of campaigning left to do. Mm -hmm. So I think they're a useful guide. They're not telling us anything about the future. They're our least worst option for measuring public opinion that we've got. I still think they're useful in that sense. Would I be betting my house on the opinion polls being correct this time around? Absolutely not. They are one piece of evidence. They're one of our best pieces of evidence, but that needs to be complemented, you know, by news reporters, by actually going out and talking to people themselves, by actually covering issues that are important and not just relying on polls as a crutch to lead coverage. That was Casey Briggs from ABC News. He's a data journalist. Really interesting there, Katrina. I think that the education variable could go a long way to fixing that problem with the bias samples. Yeah, to me, I I think there are so many issues with polling. It's hard for me as a journalist. I want clear-cut answers. I want something black and white that I can report on. But to me, it just seems there are so many variables in this. The rise of of the tradie, for example, as as a real X factor here that can throw all of this data out of whack. I don't know. I'm just, I'm on the fence as to whether you can trust them or not still. Yeah. Well, the other thing to come out of that conversation was that at least 2019, 
reset our expectations about how much we can rely on polls for accurate information. Tomorrow on The Briefing, Elon Musk's massive purchase of Twitter. Will it be good for the world or bad for the world? And will it be good for Elon Musk's financial position or is this just a vanity project? Listener.